Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by The Review Planner. For many of us, performance review season is about to begin. For many of us, it's also a challenge to remember all of the things that we've done during the year. So what happens is our performance reviews become a one-way conversation where our managers are telling us what they think we did during the year And without proof of our performance, it becomes incredibly hard for us to advocate for that raise, promotion, or new position that we know we deserve. So I created the review planner because I always wanted a tool like this, a systematic way to track all of our career accomplishments that are specifically tied to the feedback and growth areas that our managers are measuring our success by. The review planner helps you create a schedule for your career growth, and it makes it easy to focus on the goals that you have throughout the year. With email templates, monthly checklists, built-in accountability and reminders, the planner keeps you on track to accomplish your goals and ensures you are spending your time on the things that actually move your career forward. I designed the review planner to help you focus on your career and prepare for your annual review so you can confidently speak up for yourself and earn what you deserve. To learn more about the review planner, head to thereviewplanner.com. Again, that's thereviewplanner.com. In this episode, you meet Amanda C. Jones. Amanda is an innovative strategic brand leader with more than a decade of experience at global retail and consumer packaged good powerhouses. She's built a track record of delivering successful multi-million dollar marketing campaigns for personal care and beauty brands like Olay Skincare, Secret Deodorant, CoverGirl, and Becca Cosmetics. While at CoverGirl, she was responsible for improving the brand's relevance with multi-ethnic women. She led large media partnerships for the brand with Fox's Empire TV show and the BET Awards and partners with celebrities like Zendaya, Janelle Monet, and Issa Rae. While at Becca Cosmetics, Amanda led the brand's global repositioning strategy and redefined the brand's commitments to go beyond physical beauty to the mental health and emotional well-being of all people. Now she's leading product marketing across the skincare, makeup, and fragrance categories for Estee Lauder North America. Estee Lauder is a flagship brand of the Estee Lauder companies, the leader in prestige beauty brands. Amanda holds a BS in marketing strategy from the University of Arkansas and an MBA in marketing strategy from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern. She's been editorially featured in magazines like Women's Wear Daily and Essence Magazine and was fe- was a featured speaker at Harvard Business School's African American Student Conference in 2019. As you will see from this conversation, um, Amanda has a very unique perspective on what it means to be a black woman in beauty and her role along with her sorority of sisters uh, in the beauty industry who are trying to redefine what it looks like for black women to sit in seats of power um, within the beauty industry. So as always, grab your I Choose a Ladder notebook, a pen, and your favorite beverage and get ready to get to work. Amanda, thank you so much for deciding to be a part of the podcast. I've been reading up on you. I'm so, so, so fangirling right now that we are having this conversation. So thank you. Awesome. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me. Um, so the first question that we tend to start with, right, your job is a fabulous job, right? And we'll get um, to how you got there and all those types of things. But thinking back to like when you first started thinking about work, right? Did you know that you'd work in corporate America? Did you know that you'd work in this space? Like, did you have parents who, pre- like, mm-hmm. 
encouraged you to pursue a certain path? Like, how did you do it? Yeah. So no, I, my parents, my mother was in education, uh, uh, basically a, a counselor from elementary up through high school counselor. Um, so she was not in corporate America. My dad was in corporate America, but quite honestly, looking back, I had no idea uh, what he did every day. I just knew he wore a suit. Um, so it wasn't necessarily anything that um, they pushed me to go into. I would say the point at which I kind of saw myself where I am today was um, my freshman year in college. Um, so I went to school to undergrad um, to get a business degree. I didn't really know what that meant, but I knew I loved numbers um, growing up literally when I was probably like six or seven, um, I forced my mom to buy me a cash register, um, literally a cash register from like office depot. I don't even know if that store still exists. Um, and the re like, I just loved working with money and numbers. And like, I used to pretend that I was transacting with people. If we would have a garage sale. I would force her to make me like be the, the cashier for the garage sale to do all the pricing on the products. Um, and so I don't know, I had this fascination, fascination with like um, numbers and money and business and transactions. And so, duh, that meant I was going to get my degree in business um, going into undergrad. And then eventually, um, in most undergrad programs, your first year, you, you kind of take everything, you take all the different classes, you don't really know which way you're going to go within the um, discipline. And so I did that and marketing just became like, uh, really easy for me, I would say. Um, and so while I was an undergrad, because I knew I wanted to do marketing, I didn't know what path I wanted to take. I took, I did a ton of internships. So I interned at an ad agency. I interned at like a corporation, like a larger corporation who needed like corporate marketing, not necessarily brand marketing, but corporate marketing. Then I also interned at General Mills actually and did the brand marketing side. So I, I feel like it was a mix of me just kind of exploring and not closing myself off to any one path within marketing that kind of led me to where I am today. Got it. And one of the things that I think we hear a lot about um, is mentorship, right? So you said your mom was in education, your dad wore a suit, like that's as much <laughs> as um, Did the concept of mentorship or when did that enter into like your career thought process? Um, probably not until I made it to Walmart, um, which was two years out of undergrad. Um, did I understand the concept of mentorship within the context of growing my career or, or building a career? But I would say that growing up, um, I was a dancer growing up and um, I, without knowing it, had a mentor growing up, but not necessarily in the career context, but in the, you know, I care about you and your growth and, you know, your success as a human being. And that's really at the core of mentorship to begin with. So I would say I was exposed to that level of it's important to have someone in your corner that is invested in your growth. Mm -hmm. probably when I was in high school. I just didn't translate that to what that meant as a corporate leader until I got in, into a pretty corporate job in a place where I could kind of see ahead and know that like I needed that to, to kind of realize my accomplishments moving forward. So being like years removed from, from that, the, you know, two years out of college, how do you think about mentorship now, right? I think that there are people who are trying to figure out, you know, how do I leverage mentors? How do I get sponsors, right? Like and the difference between the two. So as you've become yeah. more senior, like how have you, how have you started to think about the role that that plays in your development? 
So I love that you delineated between sponsorship and mentorship because it's, I'm pretty passionate about the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, And if I could just speak candidly about how important that is for women of color in corporate America to make sure you have both. I think it's definitely, as I just mentioned, mentorship at the core is, you know, having someone in your corner um, who's invested in your growth and um, seeing you accomplish your goals. Having a sponsor as a Black woman in corporate America is in many ways more um, impactful to your career growth. Um, And I think that more times than not, and this is just the reality, your sponsor is going to be a white male. And it should be, to be honest. Um, I'm not saying that there are not powerful Black women. Thank God there are. Thank God that those numbers are growing. But to navigate, to navigate getting there um, in the current place that we're in, in this, in this industry and in this country, if you have someone who is at the C-suite level of your company, and I truly mean at the C-suite level, um, talking about you in a room that you're not in, that is when you're going to get the opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise get just having closed door conversations with someone who cares about your growth. And that is, go ahead. How do you, for you, like for the people listening, how do you clearly distinguish the two? Like, how do you define your mentor versus your sponsor? Yeah. I mean, I think a very clear way to do it is to, um, a sponsor is, is very high up in the organization in the decision-making ranks of your organization. Mm -hmm. I say, you know, anything that's, I mean, every company has different structure, but generally anything that's SVP or above, you should consider from a sponsorship perspective. Um, any, and, and so I, and for spot and for mentors, you know, not that a mentor cannot be a C-suite executive, 100% they can, but I think that it's important that whoever you choose as your sponsor, or quite honestly, whoever chooses you to, to be sponsored, um, is someone who can make a tangible impact on your career at your company. A mentor necessarily doesn't have to be at your company. A sponsor, a sponsor should. Um, and I think those are the biggest pieces. It's someone that's at your current company in a high leadership position that is making decisions that can put your name in the right conversations in the room at your current company. Mm-hmm. Mentors, um, can be in different industries. They can be in different companies. They can be in different levels. They can, they can certainly, they can be someone who, I see a mentor as more of a muse almost than um, someone who's making specific moves on your, on your behalf in a room. So as someone now who is pretty senior in the, in the beauty industry, right? And you are um, one of, not a handful, because I think the numbers are increasing, right? Of Black females in positions of power and beauty. I'm sure there are mm-hmm. tons of people who are like, I mean, I want you to be my mentor. So if someone mm-hmm. wants to be mentored, like how do you decide or not the selection criteria? Cause that's not what yeah. I'm like. What do you look at when you're thinking about mentoring someone who's more junior? 
I, I think the selection criteria is actually the right way to put it because unfortunately, you know, there's a limited, there's a discrete amount of time that anyone in my role or hire has. Um, and the reality is we do have to make choiceful decisions on who we um, commit time to. Anyone who's trying to be a mentor or a sponsor, but in my case, a mentor should, um, should not overcommit, right? And so, because if you have a mentee, you want to put the work in to make sure that you're delivering what they need from the relationship and vice versa, right? Um, mentors get get stuff from a, a mentorship relationship as well. So I think I am, you know, cold calls are hard to sift through. And I say cold calls, I mean like a LinkedIn message, for example. They're hard to sift through, but um, it's typically the only way that people who don't know you can reach out. And so I think sending LinkedIn messages that are thorough, that are thoughtful, that are not six paragraphs long, but very straight and to the point. Who are you? Why, why do I want to reach out to you, Amanda? Because of these three reasons that I observed, you know, from your LinkedIn or from I saw you speaking on a panel. Um, having very specific requests about why, why me and why you want to um, form a relationship. Um, is very helpful in that initial cold call. And then having, being prepared for that first meeting, you know, not just coming and saying like, hi, great to meet you, would love to talk to you, but, you know, having goals for the relationship, you know, have your resume and your profile um, sent to me ahead of time. You know, um, just the preparation is really important in terms of how I decide who I want to um, continue a relationship with, start or continue. For people who are listening, um, and this is something that we talk about all the time, you see that Amanda said to build a relationship with. It's not, I want to transact with you, right? And I think a lot of right. the time what people are doing, they're reaching out in very transactional ways, and then they're bruised if the response that they get or lack of response, right, isn't what they anticipated. And so looking yeah. at this as like a relationship building um, process that takes a while as it pertains to mentorship, um, I think- 100%. Yeah, it's it's and and to that point and kind of hearkening back to what I was saying about preparation, I think that's part of it, right? Is like look five years ahead at what you want your career to be and start preparing for that moment now. Start building those relationships now, like so that when you do have a request or a transaction, so to speak, that needs to occur. I hey, I saw this role at your company. Hey, um, I'm your former coworker is now at my company as my boss. I need, you know, your guidance here. Those kind of conversations that are a little bit more, I need something fall naturally when you have that relationship. So preparing ahead of time and doing the due diligence of who you want to connect with as a mentor mentee is really important. Mm -hmm. um, and I know a lot of the women who listen to the podcast, um, are on the fence about business school, right? So I was super excited to see that you also made the choice to go to business school. Um, but at the point in your career where you decided to go, right? Like you had already worked for some reputable brands. How did mm -hmm. you decide that that would be the right move for you? And what were you hoping to accomplish for the people who are trying to weigh the pros and cons of a pretty large financial and time investment? Um, how did yeah. you do that? Uh, there's a lot built in that to that question. I'm gonna save the financial commitment to later. First, just to talk about the commitment to investing yourself outside of a financial investment, but truly an investment in your, um, in, in who you are when you come to work, right? 
And I don't mean that um, in just a personality piece, which I do think business school impacted, um, but being someone who's super well-rounded, who can ask the right questions in a, you know, I, again, I'm in marketing, but going to business school as an example, I took classes and I, I suggest this for anyone who is either in business school or, or will be transitioning to business school, take the classes that you think you will fail, like full stop. Do like I'm going into marketing. I had a marketing undergrad degree. I worked at Walmart. I know I knew a lot about marketing. There's no need for me to take 10,000 classes about marketing or pricing or promotions or, you know, what I needed to take was real estate classes, venture capital classes, finance classes, um, leadership and organization classes, things that like I knew that I did not have a lot of exposure to. And I think that business school gives you that safety net to kind of do those, to take those classes and to lean into things that you, you may feel a little insecure about in your skill set. Because um, the reality is you're not going to fail out of business. It's hard to fail out of business school. You're not going to fail the class. But what you will do is learn a lot more if you take those leaps in business school. It's, it's truly kind of like a safe space mm-hmm. to build and round out your skill set. So for me, that was really, that was the biggest kind of push for me. And what you just said too, I would like even add that you should use that same strategy when choosing a business school, right? Depending on what career objectives are. So when I was applying to B school, I wanted to go to the program that was the strongest in what I was the weakest in. Because even if I was like at the bottom of the class, I would still be leaps and bounds above like where I started, right? And so I had a lot of like qualitative experience. And for me, it was like, I want a program that's strong in analytics and quantitative ex- like experiences because I'm trying to round myself out. And so what are the exactly. programs that are known for those things? And then that's how I chose my program. I think that is really good advice. Um, and a, a lot of the, I know you go to um, University of Chicago. I went to Northwestern University, so right up the road from you. Um, and both schools are known for, to your point, the exact opposite. Booth is known for analytics marketing is, or excuse me, Kellogg is known for marketing and kind of general management. Um, and I think once you get into, you know, the top 10 schools, you're going to get fantastic education mm-hmm. in any discipline that you choose to kind of focus in or classes you choose to take. I think what's also important when you're choosing business school is the culture. And that's what I meant earlier when I said um, business school fundamentally changed who I was when I walk into a boardroom, whether that be knowing much more about the PL and the financial statements um, and the earning statements, being able to, you know, prod and ask the right questions. That's the kind of, you know, um, hard skills that I learned when I went to business school. But I think going to a business school where it'll push you outside of your comfort zone as a person mm-hmm. will also change or it's part of the investment that you make when you decide to go to business school. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times you can do that through things, most of the times you do that through things that don't happen in the classroom. So yes, there's like group assignments and things in the classroom. You get to know people, you get to understand how to work with different types of people. That's all well and good. But what about the trips that you plan with your classmates that are not school sanctioned trips, but you decide you want to go volunteer at a refugee camp, which I did that when I was in business school um, in Jordan, right? So there's things like that where you like, you shock yourself almost by what you are able to experience in business school that changes who you are 
as a person when you walk into the boardroom. And I think that is a really important unlock that you get in those two years um, Mm -hmm. in business school. Um, One of the things that, and granted, um, I think I do believe that business school is a personal decision and I'm not, but I think that there is the earned, the earned branding that you get just by being in business school, right? So people make certain assumptions about you when you say that you have an MBA and then Mm -hmm. even further, like people think that I'm great at analytics when I say I go to Booth, literally Mm -hmm. they know. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But like, I think there's also that added branding that you get that gives you the confidence when you're in spaces to feel like you belong in those places and that you can hold your own. There's just some, yeah. there's a cultivation that happens in those environments that I think really do prepare you for senior leadership. I agree. And, and I think that um, depending on the way you look at it, business school and going to top business school like you did, uh, it can either help or hurt your imposter syndrome, assuming that you may have some degree of imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. um, which a lot of women in corporate America do, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, and so I think for me, that's that's really funny because that you say that because I have a really bad case of imposter syndrome. I had a worse case of imposter syndrome coming going into business school than I did coming out. But I think that it's interesting because people see top business school on your resume. And automatically, like you said, you're great at analytics, you're amazing at marketing, whatever the case may be, you get branded that, then you have to figure out how do I live up to that expectation. Mm -hmm. And so that could hurt your confidence too, right? It's depending on how you look at it. And so I would suggest, I mean, I really do believe that, you know, I had to have a enlightened moment when I graduated from business school, because the fact of the matter is it's harder to get into business school than it is to get out. Once you've gotten in, you have to like feel that you are just as good as the person next to you that has the higher GMAT score or the, you know, the the better job coming into business school, whatever those things are that originally you were thinking, I'm not good enough to get into the school, you got in. So your 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 level of confidence shifts as soon as you realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows you this level of freedom where you can say, like, actually, I'm supposed to be here too just like this, you know, investment banker next to me um, is supposed to be here. So and this is the last day on this, uh, on the B-School topic. What I've learned though, especially because I'm someone with like marketing background that, that mm-hmm. they kill it in the analytics class, but then when we're in marketing classes, I kill it, right? And so there's a balance yeah. in, like there are going to be places where some classmates are stronger and some are weaker, like, and I didn't go to business school necessarily to compete. I went for like, personal reasons and so being able to right. maximize on those things um but yeah. something that you talked about imposter syndrome right so I think we've recorded over 100 episodes at this point of the podcast and there have yeah. only been three women who said that they don't deal with imposter syndrome yeah. everybody else at some point even like current in current present day that like they deal with that and so for you as someone who has um admittedly dealt with it how do you manage it and how do you hype yourself up to pursue the opportunities that you know deep down that you deserve and that you want, knowing that there's a, this quiet voice that can sometimes be really loud that saying things that are not necessarily the most helpful. Yeah. I mean, in terms of like literally getting over it, it's preparation, right? Preparation breeds confidence for me. So, um, you know, if it's an interview for a promotion or if it's a big presentation in front of, you know, the, my company's board, um, 
it's, it's, it's all about, I, I 100% get those opportunities and immediately tell myself why, how, you know, how did I get, how did I get here? Why do they want me to present this? Um, that's an immediate thing for me, which is the part that you have to get over. For me, getting over that is preparing like no other. Like, I mean, I lock in, I, I, I make sure that there's no way that anyone could ask me a question in that presentation that I don't know backwards and forwards. Um, some of that comes, I, I definitely lean on my mentors. Um, and in this case, now that I am at Lauder and I have a sponsor, 100% lean into talking with her. She's a female um, about how to prepare. She's been in those rooms. She's presented to those people 10 times. And she can tell me like, this person's going to ask these types of questions. Make sure you hit on this for this person. Um, and so I just really feel like preparing is the key to overcoming imposter syndrome. I don't want to tell anyone that's listening that, you know, Oh, it's fine. You're you're good. You're great. You know, why do you why do you have confidence issues? The fact of the matter is, like you said, over 100 people you've talked to, 97% of them have <laughs> imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to dismiss it or say that it you're not it's not a credible feeling to have. It's how do you get over it? And for me, that's just like overextending myself from a preparation perspective so that it kind of just it, eventually falls to the wayside that the, the the confidence issues fall to the wayside because I know my stuff so um so you tell when you are prepared enough right I know that there are some people who go to like the extreme part of it where like they're they get so caught in the preparation that the execution piece of it like there's not a balance so for mm -hmm. you how can you tell if you're just like putting yourself through misery versus like no I need to like this is where the level that I need to be at and I'm good here in terms of preparation that's a good question. I mean, I think part of what you just said about the execution piece is to your point, there's, so, there's only so much you can quote unquote cram for, right? Mm -hmm. Part of it is, you know, more than you think, you know, because the reason they're asking you to present, I'm just using this as an example. The reason they're asking you to present or the reason they're asking you to um, interview for this promotion is because like, you're really good and they recognize that and, or you've done the work already. Like this is your strategy that you're presenting or this is. So, um, part of it is, um, you're not overextending to the point where you don't, you're, you're adding to what you already know. You're really just making sure that you feel comfortable with the knowledge that you already have. Mm -hmm. The other part of it is performance. And, um, that's one thing that I think I've, I won't say I mastered it, but I've, I've continually gotten better at doing is, um, looking and or sounding like I know what I'm talking about, even when I don't. Mm. And that is like, honestly, an unlock in my career that like, <laughs> again, I'm going to continue to, to figure it out and get better at doing it. Because if you look or sound like, you know, what you're talking about, it does not matter. You can make a mistake on a number move a decimal place over on accident, you know, and it, no one will ever catch it because you are speaking with the confidence. So part of the preparation is the content. The other part is the performance. And I think um, if I had to like weight it, I would probably say 60, 40 performance to be quite honest. Same. I would definitely agree. There are tons of people who are charismatic and who, when they walk into a room, 
And then like an hour later, you're like, wait, no, that doesn't make sense. Right. But in the moment, like you buy yeah. it, whatever. this is not to say don't do the work and just go up there and have a bunch of theatrics. Right. It's right. your performance is what kind of gets the buy-in that you want, but the data exactly. information is like, wait, all you need is the chance to come back afterwards. If you do make a mistake, come back afterwards and say, you know, Hey, you know, per earlier discussion, this, this topic was discussed. Here's where we landed. I, you know, looking back at it, this is actually the way that I would approach it or whatever that correction looks like. But to your point, like you got to get them to be aligned at a high level before you can even come back in uh, with those levels of detail. So um, I really do think performance is important. Agree. Um, let's talk about one of my favorite and least favorite topics to talk about on the podcast, which <laughs> black hair, right? Um, mm-hmm. How that First of all, y'all can't see her hair, but it's fabulous. Um, <laughs> you look at beauty, right? And I think that there's been a really bright spotlight on the beauty industry in the last 18, 24 months as it pertains to inclusivity and all that stuff. So before we talk about that, how do you think about yourself, right? And like your presentation or your appearance or like any pressure to be or look a certain way um, as you kind of get more senior within the industry because you're a face, right? Like you were on the cover of a yeah. magazine or something that I saw. How do you think about that? So I I think that I am fortunate to work in an industry where it's a bit more accepted to I to your point, I hate I hate even saying things like this, but to have hair um, that is seen as less professional, which I, I know that you and I don't even agree with that premise and probably most of your listeners don't either. Um, I never felt the pressure to, to wear my hair a certain way or to straighten my hair or not feel, um, like I can have my, the hair that grows out of my scalp now naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, part of that again is because I work in the beauty industry and I think, um, it's, it's seen more as a expression and, 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 uh, trendy and fashionable. Um, we knew our hair was trendy and fashionable a long time ago, but I think the industry is of course now embracing it a lot more. And so I don't feel that pressure. Now I, I, um, I know your listeners can't see my hair. I, my hair is, is a dark color. You know, I don't have a lot of different like wild colors or, you know, um, I, I do have natural hair, but I don't wear um, dreadlocks, for example. And so I definitely see that um, other Black women in my industry feel pressure to like not take it too far, mm. um, which again is a misnomer. But um, that that's an unfortunate thing. Um, all I can say is that, you know, shout out, I know you had AC Eggleston Bracey on your podcast at one point. She has created the Crown Act um, and there's lots of legislation, which is even crazy to say that we need legislation to tell us that we can wear our hair a certain way in the workplace and not be discriminated against. There's a lot of movement and understanding now happening that all I can say is I hope it continues to progress. Um, But I think that women of color should just feel comfortable being who they are when it comes to their appearance mm-hmm. obviously don't you know especially when it comes to clothes and things like that you want to be buttoned up and professional so that people take you seriously mm-hmm. but being yourself and wearing your hair as it comes out of your scalp should not be 
it should not be dictated by your job or corporate America. Um, and so I'm a firm believer in that. I've never, I've never changed my hair or felt the pressure to change my hair. So one of the things that also, I don't know why I ask the questions that always make me mad, but I'm going to ask this question. <laughs> so there's, I think there's this narrative around like you have to live in your passion, right? Like find your passion, find what you love and you'll never work a day in your life and all those things. Would you say that you are working in your passion? I am working in my passion. Um, I don't necessarily know if I believe that working in your passion means you don't feel like you're working every day. Um, it's a job, like you're still going it's to a work. job. I am going to work, albeit at home right now, but I, I work a lot of hours every day and on weekends um, sometimes. And, but I do think that it is inspiring and motivates you to keep going when you are when you are able to tangibly produce something that impacts, in my case, impacts other women's lives in a positive way, positively impacts other women's lives. And so um, my passion is, yes, I love beauty. I am not a makeup artist by any stretch of the imagination, never had a YouTube channel, never did a blog, never did any of those kind of like, you know, sexy influencer marketing kind of things. Um, but my passion is, as I mentioned, my seven-year-old story of like being at the cash register and really like running a business. Mm. And I found that as I grew up in corporate America and I'm still growing, Black girls don't, haven't necessarily historically felt like they can do that. And so a lot of what I have done is, and that's why I do take mentorship seriously, mentoring young girls seriously. I do take um, being visible in the courtroom and in, in the corporate boardrooms as serious, more so than I see. And I know a lot of people see our industry and they say, we need more black women in front of the screen. We need more black women in the magazines. We need more black women on um, in ads or all of those things are important. My passion has always been we need more Black people, Black women specifically, creating the products, owning the businesses, you know, driving the branding, driving what the brand looks like behind the camera, not necessarily in front of the camera. And so all the things that I have done in my career, and when I say I live with my passion, is as I see that dynamic shift, that's what's important to me. And that's what keeps me going every day. Um, and so, yeah, that that's, that's for me is, you know, when I see people women like Rosalind Brewer, who are, you know, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, Fortune 100 companies, um, you know, breaking glass ceilings over and over again, like that's what motivates me. And that's what keeps me going in terms of a passion for me. Not necessarily that, you know, um, Black women are now in Vogue magazine, for example, right? So it's a, it's a bit of a different twist of why I do what I do in the beauty industry. Um, so one of the things that we, we, we hear in professions, right? Like people get into spaces and because they're the first of, or it took so long to get there, sometimes we get comfortable and we don't move on, right? So as you've thought back to your career, right? You weren't always at this level. You weren't always at this company. How have you known when it was time to move on and try something else, be it in the same industry, but like maybe for a different company or for a different partner, like what kinds of conversations are you having with yourself that let you know that it's that? Um, I mean, for me, I think it's all about challenge. Um, I 
worked for CoverGirl for a good part of my post business school career in beauty. And when I knew it was time for me to leave was when I kind of got tired of um, uh, doing the same thing over and over again, right? It's like, you know, not evolving, you know, the way that we go to market or the, um, it, it essentially there was a reduction of white space for me to play in. Mm. And for me, that's when I, I knew it was time for me to go. And the same thing is true for my, my lit, my last role, um, change, you know, it was, it was, what, what am I able to impact that is going to have a bold, um, that's going to affect bold change either in the industry or my brand or the business that I'm working on. And so for me that, you know, that's what I seek to do when I'm going from brand to brand or, or role to role within a brand. It's always like what I'm trying to make bold change. Mm. Um, and again, that necessarily, it could be in front of the camera that can be in a shade lineups, you know, that, that could be in the partnerships that we do. Um, the, the messaging that our brand stands for, um, the activations, all of those kind of things that, um, you know, every time you think that the beauty industry is, you know, saturated and everyone's doing the same thing over and over again, it happens a lot. That's where I see opportunity, Mm. you know, it's getting stale. People are saying the same things. Everyone has 40 shades. What's next? Like, what is that next big bold change? And that's kind of how I know when it's time for me to either change roles or change a job or um, even change goals within the current role that I have, changing strategies within the current role that I have. So um, that's that's it for me. It's really like seeking white space. And when that starts to diminish, I, I make a change. Gotcha. And you talked earlier about working lots of hours and working on weekends sometimes. Um, and there's some, like, would you consider yourself or self-identify as someone who's an ambitious person? Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, I don't necessarily equate uh, working a lot of hours to being ambitious. Um, and I don't want people, I think more now than ever, people are understanding that, you know, thriving in life has a lot to do with everything that's outside of your quote unquote work hours. A lot of people are working from home now and your work hours spill over into your, your personal time. Um, and I think it's important for that not to happen, to have a handle on that. Um, so I don't, I don't want to equate falsely equate, you know, ambition to working a lot, but I think part of ambition is what I just spoke about is like always pushing for change, always wanting something different and new and um, disruptive. Mm-hmm. and and building what that looks like um I never I would also not equate ambition to seeking promotions and job title changes or money to be quite honest um for me that stuff that's that's one of the things that I've learned in my career so far is that those promotions and increases will come if you're doing the work and so I've always focused my ambition on the work and not the the, the title. And so you have, you're ambitious, you have a big job. How do you make sure that you as the person doesn't get lost in it, right? Like I think for a lot of us, right? When I was senior executive at, you know, it, it can be all consuming, right? And I would look up and be like, I'm exhausted, right? Like I'm, I'm running myself into the ground and then we take moments to, you know, kind of recharge and then go right back into it. And I think the last 18 months have helped me reshape how I think about 
the integration yeah. of my life and my ambition and my work. So like, curious, how do you think about that? I think, I mean, I think a lot of people have had a reckoning with that in the last 18 months since we've kind of world has stopped and restarted. Um, I think it's important to identify things that you love outside of your job. I mean, I do love my job. So part of that, um, part of that comes with that territory of like actually loving what you do. Um, and you kind of get consumed in it that way. But I think it's important to find things outside of your job that, um, that you are passionate about and enjoy. I recently started tennis um, and something, again, challenge, uh, ambition, you know, co correlates to being challenged, correlates to learning something new. And, you know, taking that kind of one characteristic about myself and extending that beyond work has been really helpful for me and mm -hmm. making sure that I'm not just being fed, I'm not feeding my ambition and my and that character trait of mine only through work, that I'm also doing it in things outside of work. Um, interior design is another thing that I've kind of like picked up. Again, I'm not an interior designer by any means, but I found, I, I found outlets to learn about how to be a better um, interior designer for my own home, of course. Um, and I've done, you know, weekend projects on the home to like, you know, put those kind of new things to test. And, you know, so it's really about, you know, finding what sparks and moves you, in my case, being challenged or finding white space mm -hmm. um, and being fed, feeding that outside of work as well as at work. And so um, I just challenge people to find what that looks like for them um, and devoting time to it. Um, and then the last question before we get to the, the lightning round, um, for maybe younger people or people who are trying to pivot into the beauty industry, like what would you say they should be thinking about focusing on um, as they try to enter maybe a new space for them? Ah, oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I think I think just focus in on like you said it earlier about like what are you, what like have a a moment to really recognize self-reflect and recognize like what you actually aren't good at and it doesn't it's not a bad thing like I think a lot of people and that's why in a lot of like job interviews you come across a lot of times the interviewer will ask you um yes what are your your strengths but also what are your weaknesses it's really important to like be in tune with what your weaknesses are and in my opinion you should lean into your weaknesses early in your career, right? Because whether that be through business school or you know through a stretch assignment in your job um, early in your career, because that's what really that that's going to separate you in, from the in the long run. It's just how you feel when you're in a um, a marketing class with a bunch of finance people. Like you feel separated from the group. Like you need to figure out what that is for your weakness, so that you can sit in a you know call it a finance or a finance class and, and step, be separated from the, from the group. Mm -hmm. And so I think people are really uncomfortable confronting their weaknesses when it comes to career development. Mm -hmm. And I find it to be kind of the best thing that you can do confronting it early in your career and building that out so that um, you become a, a more well-rounded professional um, as you move up through your career. Mm -hmm. And sorry, I did, I lied. There's one more question because I think this is no that I, um, so what are some maybe misconceptions or about the beauty industry, right? That you wish would like stop, right? Things that people, um, maybe say, maybe it's outsiders of the industry who maybe don't understand because they're not in, in that work. But I think that yeah. like, there's been a lot of strong opinions about mm -hmm. the industry. There've been 
strong opinions about what it means to be a black woman in the, in the industry. And like before, when we did our pre-interview, like everyone's experience is different, right? And there are a lot of things about your experience that like, you're like, I don't necessarily identify with that because it's not been my journey. So are there any mm-hmm. misconceptions around like what it means to be a black woman in the industry that like you wish would stop? I mean, I think, you know, and a black woman working in the industry in New York City is another layer to that. Mm-hmm. I think that there's this like perception that, you know, everyone's seen Devil Wears Prada, right? And it's, you know, dog eat dog, like everyone's, you know, scraping at each other's heels, trying to get to the top. I, I have not found that to be um, reflective of my experience in the industry. I think, um, especially being a black woman in the industry, we actually tend to stick together quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a strength and that's why you're starting to see a lot of the changes, um, that you see in the industry because there's a sorority, so to speak of black women. You know, you mentioned Carla Davis is a, is a great well, example. Carla's yeah. is an amazing example of someone who was in my tribe while I was in business school, actually. Um, and like brought me in, helped me learn some things. Then she moved to a role at Ulta. I moved to CoverGirl, and we're still working together. Then she, you know, um, you know, she'll reach out to me when she hears of an opportunity. It's that collaboration that I feel like Black women do in such a unique way that you know other cohorts of of individuals in our industry don't experience. And so, I would love for the conception misconception of um, cattiness and like aggressive behavior towards each other, especially among Black women, would cease. Like, that's actually not true. We are actually more of a sorority than anything um, in this industry. And so, um, love that. I, yeah. was, I think we're starting to, at least, I feel like you see what you want to see. And I feel like I've seen a lot more of that narrative starting to be pushed forward and mm-hmm. see it, right? Like the collaboration and people being at least giving more airtime to that narrative as opposed to yeah. the, the narrative around like women can't work together and black women and blah, blah, blah. At least in the beauty industry, I think I'm, I'm starting to see that a little bit more. And maybe it's yeah. no black women in the industry. And so I get to hear their stories. Well, um, I hope I hope it's that, but I also hope it's just becoming like intentionally becoming a more prominent story to tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and that folks like myself and Carla are actually pushing that narrative mm-hmm. to the forefront. Um, so yeah. it's, a, it's a real one. Um, it is. So we're going to get to lightning round questions. So don't overthink these. Um, <laughs> the first thing that comes to your mind, um, what's one piece of career advice that you wish you had gotten earlier in your career? Um, I would say to do what the company, like make your job what the company does best. So don't go to an accounting firm to work in marketing. Go to an accounting firm to work in accounting and vice versa, right? Um, I just think that that was the strongest piece of advice I wish I would have gotten earlier in my career. Hmm. What's the career lesson that took you the longest to learn, but has had the biggest impact on your career? Um, That, I think I've already kind of mentioned it, but just to double click on the fact that you shouldn't be chasing titles and money. Um, and just to focus in, I think Barack Obama actually has the best quote on that one. Um, focus in on doing the work that you're in right now, right? And like, forget like the, the accolades and the accomplishments and the the promotions will come. Um, that took me a while to learn because I think we're all just, we all want more money. We all want that title, but um, it's focusing in on, on the job you're in today. Hmm. What's one book that you could read over and over again? Um, it's actually a, uh, kind of fictional, uh, but it's called Homegoing by Yai Gayasi. 
Um, she's amazing. Her writing is phenomenal. And I could read that book over and over again. So good. It's so good. It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. And then the last <laughs> We all know that decisions about your career are going to be made when you are not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? Um, That she's a badass. That's what I I literally hope that people are saying, like, don't underestimate her. She's a badass. Um, And like, I feel that's happened to me before where the perception, I don't know if it's just because you know, I'm a black woman, I'm from small town, Arkansas, whatever the case may be, people underestimate me um, before seeing me quote unquote perform. And then I walk out of the room and the, it, they're saying she's a badass. And so that's, that's kind of the lasting legacy that I want to leave with anyone who comes in contact with me. Love that. And with that, thank you so much, Amanda. Thank you. So you guys know that I like to end every podcast episode with the top three gems that I got from this interview. And as always, it was so hard to pick just three because Amanda dropped so many gems. Um, But I will start with my very first one, um, the importance of confronting your weaknesses. I think a lot of the times we shy away from learning more about the areas where we feel like we're weak because of what we think it may say about us. But Taking some interest in learning how to become better um, at things that you're weak in helps you become a more well-rounded individual. Um, I love the second point that working a lot of hours and being ambitious are not the same thing. I know that we have romanticized grind culture, people sleeping when they're dead and all that stuff. And I think as you become more senior, you realize that thinking time is just as important as doing time. And so having the time to be able to strategize before you execute makes all the difference. And so if you're an ambitious person, you're probably gonna need a lot of thinking time. So don't let the world uh, fool you into thinking that doing a lot of things and always being busy is the same as being ambitious. And then I think the last part is, um, it's a combination of two things. One where she talks about how the, the performance is just as important as the content, but above that is how being prepared really does help you with managing imposter syndrome and over-preparing and knowing when you walk into a room that there's not going to be anybody in there who's going to know more about your presentation than you know about your presentation and the confidence in that really does make a difference um but as always if you want to keep the conversation going and share what you've learned you can connect with us on instagram at i choose the ladder on facebook at i choose the ladder on linkedin at i choose the ladder You can also subscribe to our newsletter by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. Again, that's CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. And until next time, thank you for listening.